This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Meg Kramer. An estimated 80 to 100 million people will watch Clinton and Trump in the first presidential debate next week. The best or worst moments from it will be picked over and replayed and clipped and quoted until the election. I went to a number of women's groups and said, can you help us find folks? And they brought us whole binders full of uh, of women. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. This episode, we're digging into what candidates do to prepare for that kind of scrutiny. You'll hear from Liz Smith, a Democratic consultant who's worked on debate prep teams for President Obama and Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley. We'll talk about moderators and the particular challenges they're facing this year with former PBS NewsHour anchor Jim Lehrer. And we'll talk about the very different expectations set up for Clinton and Trump in next week's debate. But first, I'm joined by BuzzFeed politics reporter Tarini Party. Tarini, did you ever watch The West Wing? Of course I did, Meg. I'm a political reporter in D.C. Of course I watched it. Even the seventh season? Yes, I watched it actually all the way through all the seasons, even after Aaron Sorkin left. So before I did all the research for this episode, everything that I knew about how a team prepares for a debate, I learned from that one episode of The West Wing. Do you remember it? Of course. They're in a barn in New Hampshire, and they're trying to get Jed Bartlett ready for the debate against Bob Ritchie. And, you know, he wants to be, he doesn't like to be tied down. He wants to go campaign and talk to people. But yeah, learned a lot from that app. It's like a mock debate. You have the podium set up. Yeah. CJ, who's played to perfection by Allison Janney, is the moderator. And Rob Lowe's character, Sam Seaborn, is pretending to be the other candidate. I don't know how you can talk about providing opportunity while at the same time supporting racial profiling. What the hell is I don't support racial profiling. Your nominee for attorney general did. Can you tell us why you nominated him? Why? Yes. Because bite me, that's why. It's a legitimate question. And the room is full of advisors who are there to pick apart every answer. I told you so, sir. We need an answer on Rucker. What's wrong with bite me? I think we'd lose. Not in New Jersey. It's never been shown that It, it turns problem. out that that's actually how campaigns do prepare for debates. There is a debate camp. There are binders of facts that they have about their candidate, about their opponent. They have their candidate face off against a, a stand-in for their opponent. It, it's kind of like political theater in some ways you are waiting to see applause lines and you know attack lines and you know looking at the audience which is your staff when you're prepping to see how people respond uh to rehearse as much as you can beforehand to know what you're talking about in terms of the facts but also how to you know perform them to a certain extent So I talked to someone who knows a lot about that. Okay, uh, my name's Liz Smith. I'm a Democratic consultant. She worked on Governor O'Malley's presidential campaign, and she worked for the Obama campaign in 2012. When it comes to debate prep, the way that we um, generally think about it is, what is your dream headline the next day? What does it say about you? And you always want it to say that you won. So yeah, winning is important. But it's also an opportunity to get your message out to a huge number of people. A debate is one of those campaign events that Republicans and Democrats and independents all tune into. 
So you don't just want to win. You want to win in the most appealing way possible. And what we generally advise people to do is to have a few themes about yourself, a few things that you keep coming back to and referring to throughout the course of the debate. Because it's not enough for voters to hear something one time. You need to weave your main themes and your main rationale for your candidacy in every answer. Okay, here's sort of an example of what Liz is talking about. I'm going to play for you a couple of clips of Marco Rubio, who's trying to weave his message into every answer in an early primary debate. This is an example of what not to do. He's going after Chris Christie, and he brings up the same message, the same line even, four separate times. And let's dispel once and for all with this fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. Barack Obama is undertaking a systematic effort to change this country. But I would add this, let's dispel with this fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is trying to change this country. Those are the facts. Here's the bottom line. This notion that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing is just not there true. There it is. He knows exactly what he's doing. There it is. The doing. memorized 25-second speech. Well, that's the, that's there the it is, reason everybody. why this campaign is so important. We are not facing a president that doesn't know what he's doing. He knows what he is doing. That's why he's done the things he's done. That is exactly the kind of thing these debate prep teams are trying to prevent from happening to their candidate. It has to feel natural, not studied. And that means candidates have to be fluent in every issue and argument that's going to come up. That process starts with a research book. For most candidates, what you do is the process starts with the research um, and press teams creating a massive debate prep book for the candidate. Is it like literally a book? Is it like yeah, a binder? Yeah, it's a binder. You know, it reminds me of, think about when you're studying for a test in high school or college. It's like that, but for a presidential candidate. The book includes information about what your candidate has said in the past about their voting record, everything that they might need to know in order to defend themselves against a possible line of attack that their opponent might bring. So that way they know not only where they stand, where their opponents stand, and what's going on, but also what to say. Do candidates like do they have like a list of zingers that they write ahead of time? Yeah, a lot of them do. Not everyone does, um, but it is very common to have that because look, Politicians are creatures of habit. You know what your opponent is likely to say on an issue because they've said it before. Um, it's a little difficult. It's a little bit more difficult when you're up against Donald Trump, who you know is more likely to come up with some of the stuff on his feet. But um, I'd say most campaigns I've worked on have had those. What's like a What's like a really good one? You think? Um, God, in 2012, one of Mitt Romney's attacks against. Uh, President Obama was that there weren't enough Navy, that there are fewer Navy battleships today than there were four years ago or something like that. And and uh, President Obama, you know, responded, uh, you know what? I think Governor Romney maybe uh, hasn't spent enough time looking at how our military works. You, you mentioned the Navy, for example, and that we have fewer ships than we did in 1916. Well, Governor, we also have fewer horses and bayonets because the nature of our military has changed. We have these things called aircraft carriers where planes land on them. We have these ships that go underwater, nuclear submarines. I guess I find it kind of funny to think of like a presidential candidate flipping through a binder on their bus or whatever, looking at Practicing all zingers in yeah. the mirror. <laughs> but yeah, it's like so much of this is rehearsed ahead of time. And I think that one reason to watch the debate is to see how candidates react to a moment that is basically unscripted. One of our producers, Julia Furlan, went out to talk to a couple of voters about the debates. 
One person she talked to is Allison Starr Fisher, who's voting for Clinton. And she said she'll be watching the debates for that reason, to see candidates do something spontaneous. The upcoming debate is the only time that you see Trump and Clinton across from each other being completely themselves, uh, under everybody's scrutiny, to the eye, listening to what they're saying. And I think it's going to be very telling who's going to be the most presidential or professional or uh, critical in uh, their policies. But it's kind of surprising, I think it was surprising for me to learn that every response that they have is has essentially been planned out ahead of time, mapped out ahead of time. And I think that is interesting. That has been the case for a while, but it might not be the case this time. You know, Trump, it's hard to script him. So if he if he does not stick to the talking points, we have a completely different kind of debate before us. I mean, there is also the possibility that, like, you know, preparing against Mitt Romney, you come up with your zinger about the Navy. Mm -hmm. But because Trump is like, every moment might lead to an infinite possibility of new moments. Mm -hmm. You could be prepared for that by just, you know, imagining more scenarios through or or practicing more scenarios ahead of time. Yeah. And Trump does give you more fodder for zingers. That's for sure. <laughs> but if you get under his skin in a different way, he might bring up attacks you don't want him to. So that's something to think about as well. You know, he's kind of hinted that, you know, I'll see how Hillary Clinton treats me. If she treats me unfairly, then maybe he'll bring up some of the, you know, stuff from her husband's administration that she wouldn't want being brought up at the first debate. Okay, so you've done your research, you've got your binder, you've got your zingers. Now it's time for that mock debate. And they really just set it up like that. They set up two podiums or they set up a table, depending on what the format is. It doesn't have to be in a barn, Does, FYI. doesn't have to be in a barn. It doesn't, not everyone has to be wearing their fleece quarter zip-ups. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and then you have to pick someone to be the stand-in for the other candidate. And that person's job is to like, just be an asshole. <laughs> as hard as they can be so that you're prepared for the worst. And so Liz Smith actually played Hillary Clinton in the mock debates that Martin O'Malley did to prep for the primary debates. So I, I you know, there are a few times with, with when I was working for Martin O'Malley and I was playing Hillary Clinton and I would just launch a nasty zinger at him. Um, and he would just look over at me and be like, Really? Ouch. And she told me that it can be like kind of a weird dynamic to play that role against someone who is basically your boss. It's not something, a dynamic that you're used to every day in politics. You know, usually you're pretty deferential to the person you work for. But if you have the pleasure of going up against them in a mock debate, you really kind of get to maybe take out some of that built up uh, resentment over time <laughs> out on them. And it's kind of fun. And as long as, as long as they have a good sense of humor about it, it really helps them prepare because it's definitely better to go in and to make sure that they're desensitized to attacks. And so if you go on the attack more in debate prep, they're less likely to get backed into a corner and get overly defensive on the um, debate stage. And I think it's a, it's a really important part of it. It's kind of fun as a staffer. Um, and I think it's fun for everyone to watch. But, 
yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the dynamic there. I asked Liz how she thinks each candidate should approach this part of debate prep. She said that Clinton needs to know all of Trump's past positions and whether or not he's telling the truth about them. There's no doubt that Hillary Clinton needs to go in armed with all those facts so that if in real time he says something that misrepresents, you know, his past statements or his past positions, she's ready to call him out on it and put him on the defensive. And in the Republican primary debate, we saw that he was able to get away with that. But that's also because he was in a field of 16 people and, you know, a a lot of people had different incentives and weren't willing to really take him on on it. If I'm Donald Trump and I'm looking at Hillary, the one thing I would say that I would look for are where are the areas where she gets a little tripped up? And we know those issues because we've seen them in the forums. Um, She was not at her best in the Matt Lauer forum, the commander-in-chief forum, when he pressed her on her emails. So I think with her, it's less about testing her knowledge and things like that. It's more about trying to put her on the defensive because I think that's when she's got her back up against the wall, that's when she comes across the worst in these debates. Tarini, are Trump and Clinton doing any of these things to prepare for the first debate? So it's unclear exactly what Trump is doing, but we have a better idea of what Clinton is doing. She definitely seems to be doing her homework. She doesn't have any more campaign events scheduled until the debate. She reportedly has not only her top advisors, but also several media and communication specialists helping her in the in the last few days before the debate. Um, her staff has also said that she's been watching Trump's primary performances pretty carefully and kind of sort of running through the tape to see how he responds to attacks uh, because she's not only studying kind of her policy positions and his positions, but also his his personality traits, because that's such a big part of who Trump is and how he acts. What about Trump? What's he doing? Trump, you know, it's been harder to pin down exactly what he's been up to because, you know, in his interviews, he said he definitely wants to be prepared, but he doesn't want to prepare too much. But he has been, we know, meeting with former Fox News chairman Roger Ailes and radio host Laura Ingram on Sundays at his golf course in New Jersey. Apparently, they've been helping him come up with some of those zingers that we discussed. Um, he's he's also been kind of making fun of Clinton uh, the past few days on Twitter, uh, you know, saying that she's had to take time off to prep for this debate. Meanwhile, he's kind of just still doing his usual thing. And the only reason that we know any of this is because campaign staffers have been telling the press about it. So a lot of this is not just the prep, but the sort of posturing that goes on um, on both sides before the debate. Definitely. And and the point for both sides is to lower expectations before the debate. So the Clinton team is has been pushing this idea that 
you know, Donald Trump might be new to politics, but he's definitely proven himself as uh, this great debater during the primaries when he, you know, at times destroyed a lot of his contender, the other contenders. Um, and then they've also pushed this idea that, you know, they have a lot to prep for. They don't know which version of Donald Trump is going to show up. Uh, the Trump team has pushed its own idea of, you know, lowering expectations. Uh, they've said that, you know, Hillary Clinton is a scripted career politician. Of course, she knows how to debate. Uh, meanwhile, he's new to this. They've also pointed the fact, uh, pointed out the fact repeatedly that she's been spending a lot of time prepping while he hasn't. So, of course, she'll be more ready than he is. Uh, there was actually a, a new memo sent out by the RNC uh, that said, that called Clinton a a talented debater and that Trump's lack of formal political one-on-one debate experience gives Clinton a significant advantage uh, heading into this debate. So both campaigns are trying to shape the story about the debates before they even happen. Exactly. I mean, you know, they want to shape everything they can as much as they can to their advantage. So let's talk about the format of the debate for a minute. It's 90 minutes long broken into six segments that are 15 minutes long. And in each of those segments, each candidate gets two minutes to make opening remarks. And then for the next 11 minutes, they're just supposed to talk to each other about the issue or topic that the moderator has brought up, which is a lot looser, I think, than some of the uh, formats that we've seen, especially in the primary debates so far. Yeah, they're not going to be as many quick pointed questions back and forth at the candidates based on their past positions or, you know, current policy proposals. The the debate is divided into three sections that we know of that were recently released. Achieving Prosperity, Securing America, and America's Direction. Yeah, and it, it I guess you could translate that to like the economy, mm-hmm. security and defense and America's direction. What is that about? I think that's like a miscellaneous category. Someone who has a lot of control over how these debates go is the moderator. This year, there has been a ton of focus on who the moderators are, how they sort of interact with the candidates, whether or not they fact check the candidates. And Matt Lauer was criticized for this, not during a debate, but He had sort of a one-on-one interview with both Clinton and Trump recently, and he, Trump said a few times that he did not support the war in Iraq, which is not true, uh, you know, as BuzzFeed has reported several times. And Matt Lauer didn't push Trump on this. He didn't, you know, he didn't follow up. And so in general, there was a lot of criticism that he kind of gave Trump uh, a free pass and basically gave him softball questions. It wasn't a debate. It was a one-on-one interview. But that has, because it's so close to the first debate, it's kind of set the stage where everyone is expecting Trump to kind of do his thing where he says stuff that may or may not be true. And people are worried that he might, you know, start getting away with it at a point which is very crucial in, in the general election. You know, I think something else about the moderator is that they're like the only other person you can blame if the debate doesn't go well. So the moderator becomes a scapegoat for both campaigns Mm -hmm. if they feel like their candidate's performance was less than perfect. Yeah, it's very easy to blame the moderator. 
Up next is a conversation Tarini and I had with former PBS NewsHour anchor Jim Lehrer. His nickname is the Dean of Moderators because he's moderated more presidential debates than anyone between Bush and Gore, Obama and Romney, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot, and George H.W. Bush. We talked about the can't-win situation moderators are in and the particular challenges they face this year, like whether or not Donald Trump's persistent lying means they should take a more active role by fact-checking both candidates. But first, I asked him if he's experiencing any FOMO about this year's debate. So you have moderated 12 presidential debates. Is there any part of you, just like a little tiny part, that wanted to come out of retirement one more time to moderate a debate between Clinton and Trump? Oh, a tiny part. A very, very tiny, tiny, tiny (laughs) part. Yes, 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 yes. I would be less than honest if I didn't say that. What is like the like when you watch the debates, what is the full spectrum of feelings that you have while you're watching other moderators do their jobs? Well, I'm going to have great sympathy uh, because I know that no matter what happens, they're going to be criticized for the end result. The moderator is caught in a uh, the constant task of deciding when to move on, when to stop somebody, when to when you know all of that kind of thing. And it's a no win mm-hmm. deal because everybody watches through their own prisms. And so there will be criticism no matter what. So that's my first uh, impulse in watching these debates. If you had your way for your sort of dream scenario, uh, what, what would your ideal format and staging look like? The ideal format is the, is the format that is there. The one that was developed uh, began in 2008 and, uh, and in 2012 it reached uh, full flower uh, when the candidates, they're divided into segments, but they're 15-minute segments. And that means it's wide open in that 15 minutes. The candidate can go back and forth, ask each other questions, whatever. And that's the way it ought to be. It ought to be a debate among the candidates, not a kind of uh, simultaneous one-on-one interview. Uh, it, it Let them go at each other. Let them talk to each other and let them question each other. And then and the moderator is there to facilitate, to grease that conversation, that exchange, and to make sure it's fair, et cetera. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you get them to talk to each other, to address each other? Well, I, uh, as somebody who tried to get it done the first time in 2008, it, was a, uh, it didn't work because one of the candidates, in that case, John McCain, wouldn't do it. But in the second go-around in 2012, uh, the debate that I did between uh, – Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, uh, they did go at each other. They did speak directly to one another. And um, it's hard. I mean, the moderators, as I say, the moderators got to got to have a feel for what's fair and what's not fair and when to move on, when not to move on. Is this a subject that has been, is this new stuff? Is this something that should be picked up on? And it's basically a no-win deal. Uh, I mean, except for the people, for the vast majority. The vast majority understand this. Uh, or, or well, I think uh, have begun to understand it, that, that that is what a debate is. You were criticized in 2012, though, for being too reserved when you moderated the debate between Mitt Romney and President Obama. Yeah, is it, sure. Like, and, is, that, is that a fair criticism? Well, no, frankly. Uh, the criticism came from the Obama folks. Obama did poorly in that first debate with uh, Romney. And you can't blame the candidates, so you have to blame somebody, you blame the moderator. The fact of the matter is, it was my intention and the debate commission's intention, and both candidates knew 
this that was part of the part of what they agreed to do was uh, they were supposed to open it up and I was supposed to let it run. And I did. So you said on a panel earlier this month that it wasn't the moderator's job to sort of intrude in the debate and fact check the candidates and it was the candidate's responsibility. That seems like that's a lot to ask this year when Donald Trump continues to insist on points that are fundamentally untrue. How do you see that playing out? Moderating a debate, it's the moderator's responsibility to make sure that the other candidate has an opportunity to fact check. And if there's something lingering there, yes, step in. But it's not the moderator's responsibility to fact check him or herself. It's the responsibility to make sure there is fact-checking and to put the other candidate in the position of, uh, of doing it. And uh, the voters are not stupid. I mean, they're watching this thing, and they'll, they can, if the moderator's job is to make sure that it's all revealed for the people to see and make their own judgments about all of this. It isn't plain God as uh, some kind of, oh, oh well, now you are, you're wrong here and you're right here. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's an attitude. Does Trump change that dynamic, though? Because he do, when he talks in these interviews and in debates in the, in the Republican, during the Republican primary, he does say a lot of things that aren't true. And sometimes, you know, the, can, the other candidate can't always interrupt to correct him. So does that change your thinking on that at all? You know, his, his history, I guess, so far as a candidate? Everybody is going to watch what happens on the 26th, on September 26th, uh, and see how Hillary Clinton... Uh, handles uh, whatever uh, uh, Donald Trump says. Nobody has ever been challenged, ever ever had an opportunity one-on-one to challenge Donald Trump. And it's going to be up to Hillary Clinton, and and it's going to be the other way around as well. That's why it's going to be what you'd call a high-audience venture. And, uh, my God, nobody knows what's going to happen. And uh, this, is, uh, this is full display. This is uh, full uh, transparency in, the, in this case because everybody's going to see it. And uh, there's not another 16 candidates to go to or you know, all that sort of stuff. And there's not a bunch of loaded questions mm-hmm. and all of that coming from moderators. And uh, it's very different. Very different. People are going to see a very different scene from what they saw in the, in, during the primaries. And... Uh, uh, and, and, and there's no way to, to, to talk about it until you see it. Do you think that's true? Do you think that people know when Trump's lying, that it is apparent to people that he's telling a lie? So I'm not convinced. Uh, I know to some people who have been following the election closely we'll know that, okay, maybe that's not true, that's not true, that's true. But a lot of people are just tuning in and have not been paying attention to the details of, you know, Trump's past comments, past positions. And, you know, I think if the moderators are not going to fact check, then Hillary Clinton has a big task ahead of her because it is awkward to you know, keep trying to set the record straight, to keep trying to fact check, because you're also, her job is also to get her message across and win over you know, those independents, moderates, and you know, make herself seem more likable, which has been an issue for her so far at this cycle. Is there a level on which Clinton and Trump are going to be debating each other, but their performances are going to be for two completely different audiences. 
they should be for the same audience. But from what we've seen of Trump so far, he seems to be still catering to his fan base, to his core supporters. And if he continues to do that, then it's going to be them playing to completely two different audiences. But if they're trying to go after sort of the same types of voters in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, who, you know, the average American voter who's frustrated with how things are going and is still undecided. By the way, I don't know how people are undecided, but, you know, that's a that's a topic for another day. If they're still undecided, they should be targeting those voters, that demographic. But it, again, it depends. A lot of this depends on which Donald Trump shows up. So you can't like you can't actually win a debate. There's no scoring system. There's no points that you can score to like beat the other candidate. Come on, Meg, a point for every zinger. Do you not know about that? <laughs> but like it seems like in this case, Trump and Clinton are being held to very different standards of what it takes to for each of them to win, quote unquote, win the debate. Yes. Uh, winning. I mean, there are no points. Yes. But at the end of the day, what Trump is really good at is owning the news cycle. And in some ways, that counts as winning. You know, <laughs> that, that does. If you turn on the TV and you're hearing about what Trump said nonstop and not what Clinton said during the debate, it, it could. It's giving Trump all this attention that, you know, for days, potentially, because debates are so important. So it, in that way, he may win, you know, and for Clinton, it's to get her message out with Trump being right next to her, which can get very challenging because he's going to throw every attack he can at her. And it's to come out of this debate more likable than she is now and to reach those voters who are unsure uh, about electing some, you know, some people who are unsure about electing a female president or some who are concerned about you know, her husband's administration or uh, the email scandal. For her, it's to come out of this recovered from a lot of those topics and be able to reach voters who aren't quite convinced they can vote for Clinton, but they don't like Trump either. Yeah, and she has to do that without alienating too many progressives either. There's someone else our producer, Julia Furlan, talked to. His name is Peter Mercury. He's already decided that he's going to vote for Clinton, but he'll be watching the debate looking for a reason to feel really good about that decision. Do you think it could change your mind? It could really solidify my vote for her and it really could make me feel very comfortable voting for her and happy to vote for her. I will be voting for Hillary regardless. I mean, duh. But I want to feel good about it is the thing. You know, I don't want to feel like I'm voting for the lesser of two evils. I want to feel like I'm voting for the most amazing candidate who I'm excited to have in office. So, yeah, Clinton will be making the case for her candidacy to new groups of voters, but also to the people who already support her. Okay, so we've heard about what voters think the debates should be for. We've also heard about how candidates prepare in advance for this moment for the debate. And we've heard about the particular challenges that are facing moderators this year. And all of this is going to come to a head in the first debate. The one thing that we don't know, the one variable, is which version of Donald Trump is going to show up. 
with Donald Trump, no one knows anything, as we have repeatedly said over several episodes in this podcast. But in this case in particular, no one actually knows anything. That's a lot of power for one person to hold. (laughs) It really is. No One Knows Anything is produced by me, Meg Kramer, with editorial oversight from Kate Nassara and Eleanor Kagan, and production help from Julia Furlan. Our music is composed by Beauty Pill. Subscribe to No One Knows Anything on iTunes to follow our coverage through the election. You can email us. We are no one knows anything at BuzzFeed.com or follow us on Twitter. We're at No One Knows. And we'll be back soon with more things we don't know. 